many, many years ago, Swamiji was giving a program in San Francisco and we were showing, we had we'd made this, this was really high level technology at that time where you had the dissolve unit where you'd have two slide projectors and the slides would dissolve. Anyway, so I was saying, we had this dissolve unit, two projectors and a recorded thing that Swami had done. I don't know if it was Ananda, whether it was the autobiography of Yogi, some really big deal. And he was giving a big program in San Francisco. And I was his techie, which tells you how, we, how low we were on the food chain for things like that. So we're putting up this thing, and he's watching, and I'm getting get this thing started. And I just couldn't, I could get the slides to dissolve, but I couldn't get the sound. And it just, it goes on and on. And I am saying, just a minute, I'll have it figured out. It's just fine. It'll be just a couple minutes. It'll be fine, you know, and then just like this. Finally, I realized instead of play, I had pushed record. So the whole time that it was silent, not only was he not speaking, but everything I was saying was being recorded on it. So, so then the next day, we had to, you know, he had to re-record his part. And while he was re-recording his part, we kept hearing me saying, it's fine, it'll just be okay. It's fine, it'll just be okay. Swami said that I sounded like he, the, the cartoon he had in mind, who was I was leading a group of tourists somewhere in darkest Africa. We were surrounded by cannibals and the water was boiling. <laughs> and we were just, we were laughing so hard, you know, the tenth time we hear me say, it's okay, it'll be just fine. <laughs> anyway, that was the point at which I decided that it's a, it's a paranormal force that infects sound systems. And so, to my mind, the curse of the mummy is the most descriptive word I can think of for the completely beyond reason, beyond the goodwill of people, beyond the sincere effort of everyone, the curse of the mummy spoils the sound system. So, having said that, yeah, exactly. I don't know when we, got, we won the curse of the mummy, but I know it's a special form of demons that lives inside all the machines. So... I'm not moving, and we're not clumping, so we're going to be okay? Okay, number four. I'm feeling a little fizzy because those of you who know I'm leaving town, I'm getting out of town tomorrow for two months. Uh, those of you who watch this on recordings won't notice the gap. I go in uh, 11 hours and 50 minutes. I fly at 11 in the morning to Singapore, but we leave for the airport earlier. So, I, you know, it's kind of a big adventure. Two, week, uh, two months in India... Yeah, five days. And, yeah, there's nothing like th- a threatened absence to make people value you. Well, I used to say people like my letters more than they like my company. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, shall we go on? Okay, number 403 of Conversations with Yogananda. So those of you who watch this regularly, there'll be a two-month hiatus on this course. Okay, number 403. The master heard a disciple chanting in the chapel one evening to the accompaniment of a harmonium. He paused during a conversation with several of the monks, then remarked with deep satisfaction, that is what I like to hear in this hermitage of God. You know, it's, it's actually interesting. I hadn't yet read this, but uh, I, as many of you know, I live in a house that has three bedrooms, and I only occupy one of them, but I have a constant stream of friends and devotees and travelers just coming through. And the house also is a freestanding house, and we converted the garage into uh, the temple for the community. It's all very economical that way. So when I go in and out my back door, the door from the window from the garage is how I I walk by it. And just uh, these last few days, um, I came downstairs, and one of my house guests was sitting in the living room playing the harmonium and then I, a, few, a little while later, oh no, after our big event on Saturday night, late at night, I went out to shut the back gate and there were two girls playing the harmonium in the temple. And I actually thought of this passage, not remembering that it was right here in the book at this time. I remember these words of Master about how, uh, how moved he was to just hear the devotion being expressed in the ashram. That, you know, everything else that happens... We do so much other work for so many other reasons. And there's always so many other pressures and so many materialistic things that we have to worry about. And, you know, it's just been, and, and our community has been through, it has been going through some complicated 
maneuvers, you know, about our organization and our structure. And it, it just all has to do with mundane, worldly things. It all has to be done. Uh, in Master's life, too, you know, he was always trying to save the organization from bankruptcy. And there were different things that were going on all the time. But then it all comes back down and he just hears Devatich chanting and he realizes this is all we're actually doing. Everything else is to enable that to happen. And just the, the sweetness it, for me in the last two days of just both of those instances which were you know, within a few hours of each other. I mean, because we've also been struggling with aspects of community life, the external arrangement of it, not within ourselves. It's just like, Community is such a gift. And, and I could really feel, I could really feel why Master thought it was so important that we, that we live in community. Just the ability to just walk, walk through and hear other people chanting. I've actually, just while I'm talking about this, in the last, well, it's been the last few weeks, but it was very powerful. On Saturday night, we had our Guru Purnima celebration and for we've been doing this for 20 or 25 years, a long time. We have it in the central courtyard of our community. I'm explaining for people who don't see it. Central courtyard of our community, which is a very large green area with really big, beautiful trees. And when we first started, we didn't have many. We had one permanent shrine to master. But we didn't have any permanent shrines to the other masters. Now we have a permanent shrine to every one of the gurus. So we'd have to construct it completely from nothing. We, I remember the Sri Yukteswar shrine, we had this big three by four foot picture of Sri Yukteswar that they would, you know, with this big effort, they would hang it from a tree. And just, it was fabulous. But it would just be, it wouldn't be there at all. Now we have permanent shrines, so we just decorate them lavishly. So it's a special event. But somehow, it, it, it's odd. It's like our community, the, the major part of our community circles that green and and the house that I live on faces on it. And for some reason, more recently than before, the community actually seems to me the green. You know, you think of the community as being the houses and the apartments where people live, but I actually feel that the community is that center space. And even when I was out there on Saturday night, I, I mentioned this kind of a little bit on that program, but I felt like the trees were the community. It's like there there was this very powerful sense of living presence. Of course, we were there with the masters, and on that event, I think they they all just, I think they look forward to it as much as we do. There's just this tremendous sense of their their presence during this whole event. But I also felt that the land itself, um, I mean, yes, I sort of know this, and the, the continued existence of the community was threatened. It, that, that threat has now been um, staved off. But uh, nonetheless, the idea that we might not be able to continue to live there um, may be part of the appreciation, but it, it also feels to me like um, when something that you have counted on, uh, its continuance may be questioned, you, you commit yourself to it with a greater energy. So it's really felt different to me. It's been very interesting. It's just been a very interesting experience. I'm not, um, I'm not sentimental. So I don't usually create, uh, I don't usually create big stories about things. But I just, it just seemed very real to me that everything seemed to be talking. And I, that was when I realized, especially after the Guru Day event where so much energy, spiritual energy is generated right in that spot. I felt to me like we all just sort of hang out on the edges so that we can go into the center. Because each of our apartments, nobody's individual apartment ever is the scene of that kind of concentrated spiritual power. You know, we, we receive it reflected, but each of us, the house I live in is, is used more often for satsang because it's the community house. But nobody's individual apartment, a hundred people couldn't get in and there was just, it, nobody would. So those four walls contain the devotion of a few devotees, but the whole collective uh, comes in the center of the green. I mean, none of that has any is of any great importance, but it was just interesting for me to think about it because we've been defending the need to have that kind of uh, 
to have that space and have that kind of space. And I, I could suddenly, it was communicating to me why that was important. Well, it looks like this microphone is over, so I'll shut my eyes and take it off. Okay. <laughs> so, number four. Anybody have any thoughts or comments? I, I, we have, uh, if, you have to, if you want to speak, you have to speak into a microphone. Any thoughts from anyone? Okay. Number 404. It is very difficult, said the Master, to find a right balance between work and meditation. You will achieve a good balance, however, if you work in the thought of God during the day and meditate on Him deeply at night. Well, that's simple, isn't it? <laughs> Just meditate a lot and never forget God's presence. I, I've quoted this... Uh, I quoted on Saturday night, and I've been thinking about this paragraph that I have from Swami, and now I don't, I don't know where it's from. I have it, uh, I just typed it out, but I don't know where it's from. And the essence of it goes like this. I, I wish I could quote it exactly. He said, uh, if you strive for perfection in the work that you do, he said, you um, will also, you may also discover the art of attunement, attunement to God. Because in order to be excellent, you're, you're more excellent if you're attuned to a higher, a higher presence. I need to pull this a little closer because I'm leaning into it. If you're attuned to a higher presence. But if you're striving for excellence, then you might also develop qualities like indifference to the feelings of others. And he mentioned a few other things, impatience, anger, things that you could do. Whereas if you strive first to be in tune with God, it will also lead to excellence, but you won't be in danger of developing those egoically re- ego-related qualities. It's just a little bit of a turn, isn't it? It's, it's like, and it's, it reminds me of Mother Teresa when uh, some journalists were, were comparing her success rate in helping the poor with other NGOs in India. <laughs> I mean, you know, people have to do it their way. Mother Teresa was a very... I met her a few times. We, would, we started going to India in eight, 1986, and, so she, and we would visit her ashram, her, uh, one of her places in Calcutta, and, and she, would, she would always meet foreigners. If, if you went to the 5.30 Mass, you had to get up early and go to the 5.30 Mass. At, at 6... I think it was the 5.30 Mass. seems like it was real early. Uh, she would meet with you afterward, the foreign groups. So, so we all would go to the 5.30 Mass, and then she would, she would just spend a few minutes with us. Actually, what, the first time we met her, we wanted to immediately commun- we wanted to try to communicate to her quickly who we were. So we sang for her. I, I, we might have sung uh, Lord Most High or uh, Long I've Called You. We sang something like that that really showed how devoted we were to God. And then every year when we came, we would always sing something for her again until the third or fourth time we were there. I don't know how many times we saw her because she died somewhere in there. Um, she whispered, she, when, we, we, when she saw us, she said, oh, she said to her sister, none, she said, oh, we should be very nice to these people. They come every year and they're very devoted. And all she knew of us was this like few minutes of conversation, but she obviously felt it from the music. And of course, if she paid attention, we were very still during the, the Mass and so on. I'm just going to finish because I'm talking about her. I always liked meeting her. I mean, of course, how could you not? She was about... She was real small. She was a very small person. And, and she also... She looked to me like she had poured herself out so much into her service that she'd just gotten smaller and smaller. I mean, she was a little wizened but it was like she's em- she was emptying herself out and the, the bag that was her was just getting deflating. But she was also very matter-of-fact. She was an extremely unpretentious and not at all into fluff, just very straightforward, straight-spoken person. And I, naturally, it was delightful to meet her. And I watched her nuns. They would, you know, after the Mass, they'd go into their routine before they'd go out onto the street. The nuns had two sets of clothes, and they'd put on one, and they'd wash one. And there's this concrete, Indian-style, very, very plain building. And so right after the Mass, they would all kick into there, and you'd see the nuns with their bucket of water, washing out the one garment they weren't wearing and hanging the wraps before they left so that it would be dry for the next day. 
I just, I felt lifetimes of that that kind of life for me. It was just like, I know this life so well. I, I was I was partially attracted to it, but mostly the sense of familiarity was just it was it was so deep, you know, this having nothing, just selfless service to the poor kind of life. But otherwise I didn't feel that much attunement with um her and I liked being there, but it, it didn't touch me that much. After she died, in the Indian way they put her body in a a, a square box, which was sort of the Mahasamadhi Mandir, or however they would see her, and it was right in their chapel, her, what would you call it, sarcophagus, or whatever you would say, her body was right there. Meditating against that, I was so uplifted. It was, it was, it was interesting to me, too, because I'd been there repeatedly, and I'd never, I'd never had that experience when she was living, but after she passed, I had a wholly different experience of her, which is me or her, I really don't know which, but it was really notable. You know, it can also be that, um, I mean, a little bit now that I think about it, having written about Swamiji, when you have a lot of work to do, you don't necessarily, either those experiences are withheld from you, which Ramakrishna said to Vivekananda and Master said to Swami. You know, it's, it's, you have other things to do right now, so you're not going to have these experiences. And Mother Teresa had that odd, posthumous sort of release of her letters in which she didn't seem like a very happy person. Swami's response to that was essentially that that didn't really represent her feelings. She was just writing to her priest. (laughs) He felt that she somehow felt obligated as a Catholic to suffer because he found it incomprehensible that she could have lived the life she lived and not have felt more bliss from God. I mean, that was just his comment. It was just an interesting comment. Um, but nonetheless, whatever the explanation, it certainly seemed to me that after she died, there was a wholly different presence there than while she was living. But Swami himself, his consciousness was profoundly masked during a great deal of his lifetime. And only after his work was done, which for him was ten years or so before he died, his whole demeanor, his whole expression really shifted. So all the way back to Mother Teresa and the journalist, when the journalist was challenging her, there was another challenge to her that I loved. Someone, one of the journalists said to her something like, well, Mother, people say that you're a saint. And the obvious expectation was, oh, no, not me, why me? She said, and why aren't you one? (laughs) I mean, that was her way. It's like, being a saint, that's what we're here for. Why aren't you a saint? What is this stuff? No false modesty. But when... uh, they asked her to compare the effectiveness of her work in helping the poor. She said, I'm not helping the poor. And the journalist looked like, uh, excuse me, like that's what you do all day is you help the poor. And then after that had sort of sat for a minute, she says, I'm doing what Jesus asked me to do. And she didn't explain it, and I'm not sure the journalist got the distinction But she was doing what Jesus asked her to do. And if Jesus asked her to stop serving the poor, she would stop serving the poor. If he asked her to take a, you know, take a ministry to the richest people in the world, she would take a ministry to the richest people in the world. She she was there to serve God. And of course he asked her to do this, so she committed herself to it completely. And, And she never looked back and held back nothing. But the motivation was to please Jesus and helping the poor was what he had asked of her, so it became important, but not in itself, if it didn't please Jesus. And so it's a, it's a completely different way of thinking about everything. And this is, of course, what Swami's talk, uh, Master's talking about is, you know, it's not so difficult to find the right balance. If you think of God during the day and if you meditate at night, which means that you're making attunement the object of what you're doing. And if attunement is the object of what you're doing, then everything comes into balance because you are acting from inspiration, not from an ego-driven definition, uh, not a self-defined idea of what's supposed to happen. I I just uh, published this book about Swamiji, Swami Kriyananda Lightbearer. I'd like to mention its name, and if I had it, I would hold it up. Um, 
You can buy it wherever books are sold. <laughs> Not quite, but you can find it. Um, but it took me a while to write that book, and I'm not going to go into all of that. But I had an idea in my mind of how that book was going to be. And uh, to put it in very simple words, it was, it was going to be kind of a breezy memoir. It was more or less how I had worked it out. And I thought it would be somewhat similar to the other book I wrote about Swamiji, which is similar to the way I talk about him, which is I just string lots of stories together and lots of different things. And what happened in 1973 is paired with what happened in 2012, if they match, in theme. And the, uh, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him, is exactly like that. And usually that's how I do it, because that seems to be the way to do it, because you can get a fuller picture. But, but when I really finally got settled in, in seclusion, to really work on this book, it just told me what it was supposed to be. Swami told me what it was supposed to be. But it was I, was, I was trying to write it well, but all of a sudden it was not my project anymore. Which is not, I mean, I'm very, very pleased that it happened, but I don't present that as, as something singular. Swamiji used to say this to us all the time. He would just say, I would just ask Master and he would tell me how to do it. Or I would put my attention at the spiritual eye and, you know, and God would tell me what I'm supposed to do. And, and sometimes he would talk to us about how much he was able to accomplish and how many varied and different projects he was able to do. And people, I mean, people who didn't understand him would think he was just unspeakably egotistical. But, he, but at the end of it, he would always say, well, you just put your attention at the spiritual eye. Or I knew I couldn't do it, but I knew Master could, so I asked Master to do it. And he wasn't bragging, he was instructing. He was just saying to us, if you attune yourself first, then perfection will naturally follow. Productivity, creativity, clarity. And, you know, we all have experienced it to some extent or another, but we have to fully integrate the implications of that. Which is that if we're attuned first, everything follows. And if we're not... Well, Swami, he said, this was fortunately a long time ago in my life, but I've never forgotten. I had a project, and it was a sort of sequential project in which different people took turns being responsible for this particular aspect of things. I got a little competitive. I wanted my cycle to be a little more better and successful than the cycles that had gone before. And as a consequence, mine was, did not work out very well. And, and afterwards, Swami said to me, I loved it. Asha, whenever your ego gets involved, you just make terrible decisions. <laughs> which has been a wonderful little mantra that I keep in the back of my mind. You just make terrible decisions because you start thinking about the wrong aspect of it. You know, we all make those mistakes. It's, it's, even that one, actually, that one was just such a blatant and foolish error that I don't even remember, I don't even remember being upset when he said that to me because it was just so true. What could I say? I had just completely messed up because I just got carried away with myself. I wasn't doing what Jesus wanted. I was trying to do a thing. And in spiritual life, you don't have that anymore. It's not an option. It won't work for you. Any comments before I go on? Okay, number 405. You won't find God by making constant excuses. For example, saying, when I find a quiet place, I will meditate. That is not at all the way to get there. If you tell yourself, however, right now, I will plunge into deep meditation, you can be there in a moment. When you are really sleepy, you have no difficulty in sleeping, no matter where you are. As a public speaker, I'm in the unique position of watching grown-ups fall asleep, which is not something that most grown-ups get to do. (laughs) And I'm very sympathetic for those of you who work all day and then even try to come to class. None of you seem to be falling asleep tonight, so it's not personal. But I, 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 see, I see firsthand what Swami says, where in subconsciousness your eyes drop, you know. In consciousness they're straightened, in superconsciousness they go up. So I, I know it's true. Anyway, when you are really sleepy, you have no difficulty in sleeping, no matter where you are. When a person is in love, he finds no difficulty in thinking of his beloved. Rather, it is difficult not to think of her, even to the point of ignoring his work. Be in love with God. It is easy to meditate deeply when your love for him is deep enough. 
So what Master is actually saying is cultivate devotion. And it's an interesting characteristic. Someone was talking today about various other spirits, various other communities in the world, not necessarily ashrams, but spiritually inclined communities or new age kind of communities. And he commented that you know that they have lots of lots of people are doing interesting things, but what Ananda has is love, because that's what Master taught us, and that's what Swami modeled for us. You know, the our our friendship. You see, you can imagine when you live, when you swim in water, you think water is just everywhere. But the way Swamiji taught us, the the value he put on friendship, the time he spent with people, the way he 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 gave time to people, the way he would travel on holidays, the way he would have um, dinners at his house, parties and gatherings at his house, he he put a high value on our interaction with each other. And he would, Swamiji was extremely attentive, and I, I, I noticed this. He would give people birthday presents. He would give people wedding presents. Sometimes he would give anniversary presents. When he went away on a journey, he would come back with little gifts for people. It, I mean, it was like it was the opposite of a kind of austere um, negation of the normal things of this world. He was, in fact, exceedingly gracious when somebody who he didn't know well would invite him over to dinner, he would take a, a, a hospitality gift. You know, it's just like, and those things were not so much important in themselves, but he was modeling for us that our social interactions with people are very important and our friendships are very important. In fact, he, he said, um, one of the purposes of Ananda is to show the world what true friendship looks like and how cooperation is the automatic result of true friendship. And I, I had never quite put it quite like that, but I know from the years when I was traveling and talking about the community a lot, which was like during the 70s and a little bit into the 80s, when communities were kind of a big happening thing, everybody would ask me about our systems. You know, what's your decision-making system? What's your conflict resolution system? And, and many of these other communities, most of which do not exist anymore, part of what they would do is they would have all these elaborate systems to recreate human relationships according to some ideal model that was manifested through that system. And we didn't have any system, really. I mean, we did have an elected village council, which really decided almost nothing and had no particular system. We, the, the council was elected... Uh, then we had representatives from several different areas in the community. I'm just going to tell you another funny. So there was no real campaigning or anything like that, but this gentleman named Suresh was going to run for city council, for the, for the village council. Or maybe it was just a joke that he was going to. And then Ananta, who's Gary McSweeney's brother, who's very humorous, decided that he would be Suresh's campaign manager, which all of it was ridiculous. And so... Ananta made this big banner that said, Swami Kriyananda says, parentheses, I mean, open quote, Suresh, period, close quote. <laughs> Which is an authentic quote from Swami Kriyananda. <laughs> and he just put it up as the big banner to get Suresh elected. I mean, that was about how seriously we took the whole thing. Swami just loved that. He always really liked clever humor. But uh, coming back to where we were, Oh, yeah, we just had no systems. And the, ex- the obvious explanation, the other explanation, was that Ananda was not organized uh, horizontally first, is the way I would think about it. It wasn't peer-to-peer. It was everybody trying to tune to the masters. It was like there was, this, there was another entity, and that entity was attunement. And everybody was striving to be in tune with the transcendent reality, which is the gurus and the presence of God. And because we were all attuning that way, we were automatically in tune with each other. Now, do not misunderstand. Swami said, Ananda is a very old family. And his phrase was, we have been all in all to one another in past lives, which means not only dearly beloveds, but also mortal enemies. Because often... Dearly beloved, when love is thwarted, turns to anger, which turns to mortal enemy. 
I mean, it just, it, it shifts to exaggerated attachment, which leads to desire, which can lead to anger, leads to all sorts of things. So all of those things have also happened. So the phrase I use is, the friendships you see at Ananda are often hard won. It's often taken a tremendous amount of determination and will and attunement to to either build or bridge or maintain those friendships. But then the friendship causes people to automatically want for each other the best for each other. And it's hard to be too selfish for yourself when you also want the best for your friends. And so then you don't have to coerce the cooperation. It just comes spontaneously. Swami's comment about the elaborate systems is is pretty simple. He said, um, how did he put it? He said, if people are of goodwill or of attuned, however he said it, he said, any system will work. And if they're not, he said, they can sabotage the best system, <laughs> which we all know. You know, if human human selfishness can just destroy it, whatever it is. And if people are of goodwill, you can use any system at all, and the goodwill will carry through. So it's, it's working more from the right part of it. So here he's talking about meditating and loving God, and we we tend to think that we discipline ourselves into having these meditation routines and working for these number of hours. And it's a, it's a balance because if you don't take yourself in hand, you can pretty much drift through many incarnations. You know, it's, it's not like you don't have to put out willpower, but it's what you use your willpower for and how you use it. If, if we can't just always be trying to bully ourselves into being better. It's, it's much easier to, to open the heart and, and inspire yourself to be better. And what, what we should be seeking all the time is not some kind of iron discipline, but a kind of joyful um, enthusiasm for what we're doing and do those things which awaken that joyful enthusiasm. And I mean, there's lots of specifics. I'm not going to give a class in sadhana now. But Master's emphasis on devotion, and this brings me back also to what I was saying, you know, a characteristic feature of being an Ananda devotee is that it's a very devotional path. And even, you know, being a devotional path, it's it's not automatic. There are many ashrams that are really quite austere, and the kind of uh, freedom of self-expression, artistic self-expression, all the things that we take for granted... They're just not part of the culture there. But ours is, a, is based on devotion and based on love, so we should carry that all the way through and not think that there's any part of our path where that's not central to it. I mean, a Master was called a Prem Avatar. That's what Rajasi called him. Swami called him also an Ananda Avatar, a Joy Avatar. But that's what I was saying on Saturday, joy and love. Those are the characteristics of our path. And perhaps if Swamiji was not an avatar, but he, he definitely, I think, joy was the personification of who he was. That's what he called us, Ananda. I mean, of all the choices he could have made and all the words in the world, that was the word he was drawn to, was joy. He calls jo- uh, bliss is love in action. That's how he put it. When you feel so much love, your love flows out and flows out in joy. They're very hard to separate. So it's a very sweet thought. And so now number four or six. Master said, I never do anything with personal motivation. I don't do things because I want to. If people ask me, why are you doing this or that? I say, who is doing it? Who is doing it? I am only carrying out his will. I have no personal concern. Yogananda doesn't interest me anymore, Master said. I want only to carry out his will. You know, when Swamiji met Master, and Master asked from him his unconditional love, Swamiji um, was able to give that. But when he asked for his unconditional obedience, Swamiji said as eager as he was to be accepted, he had to be sincere. And he said, you know, what, what if I think you're wrong? And Master replied, I'll never ask any of anything of you unless God asks me. 
accept what God asks of me. And Swami had so much faith in Master already that 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 satisfied him. It's interesting because just in the exchange, Swami writes, um, that, that satisfied him, and he immediately said, then I give you my unconditional obedience. But implied in that was that he already had absolute and total faith in Master. So when Master said that to him, there was no doubt in Swami's mind that that would be the truth. So there was already this, you know, amazing rapport that's, of course, the discipleship built up over many lifetimes. In, uh, in the Light Bearer book, I quote this uh, from Swamiji, a note I had somewhere. Swamiji said, When I was a child, I always felt as, I, as if I were living in a world of my own that I didn't share with anyone. That no, nobody was in, it wasn't that he, he closed himself off, but there was just nobody who shared that world. In fact, Swami talks about, you know, about the age of nine. He was especially, his father lived in a very different world because his father was a pragmatic scientist who didn't particularly, who didn't believe in God. And his father's world was just a completely different world than Swami's. And Swami said he, he couldn't help but feel as the firstborn male child that his father's world was the right normal world and that the world that he and Swami inhabited, which was so completely different, that somehow he was the one who was mistaken. So it was a bit traumatic for him until this point. Swami said, I always felt I lived in a world of my own. When I read Autobiography of a Yogi, I could see that Master and I lived in the same world. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? Like, what was that world, and how did Swami translate from his childhood what he experienced into reading Autobiography of a Yogi, but could tell that they had the same uh, experience, they had the same consciousness? That remark I found in my notes when I was writing the book, and I had written it down at the time he said it, or saved it from when he wrote it, I don't remember now. But it, but when I read it again when I was working on the book, it was new to me. I had lost track of it in the course of 15 banker's boxes full of notes, but but it, I've, I've contemplated it so much since then, I can't believe that I lost track of it. I must not have felt the implications of it before. But therefore, by the time he, he got to Master, I, it, you know, as soon as you factor in reincarnation then you realize that nothing is new. You can, you can have five minutes with someone and it, it, you're just picking up where you left off. I mean, think of all the deep friendships and relationships we have now. The soul doesn't forget. The, the faces change, but there's just that extraordinary familiarity. I mean, a lot of times, I've never given birth to a child, but a lot of times mothers will say when the baby's put in their arms, it's just like, oh, there you are. I mean, this is a newborn baby, and you just look at the eyes, and you already know who that is. How could you know by conventional standards? But you can easily if, it's, if these are continued relationships. And what would be more vivid than the guru-disciple relationship, which transcends life and death anyway? So, um, when Master says, I never do anything with personal motivation... Swamiji actually said the same about himself. He said sometimes people, he, he mentions one, um, one devotee at Ananda who, as Swami put it, Swami would find him sort of staring, find this young man sort of staring at Swami like this. And in fact, the, the young, young man said at one point, I just can't figure you out. <laughs> and Swami said that that very statement implies that there's some kind of complex motivation going on. And the man, who was, you know, quite intelligent, but he couldn't find the consistent thread of self-interest that motivates almost everyone. And Swami said, in commenting about it later, he didn't really say this to the man because he didn't think the man could understand it. He said, I, there's, no, there's, no personal, there's no personal motivation here. So there's nothing to figure out. It's, it's just the intuitive sense of what needs to happen next. I talked about this recently in some other context, that Swami did not figure things out. He, he was inspired, and he, he, had, he had confidence in that intuition. And it wasn't even the confidence based on thinking about it. It was so habitual to him to just trust it 
that he, he just moved through. I mean, this took me a long time to realize because I just assumed that he was calculating. And I just assumed that he was brilliant at calculating. <laughs> calculating, I don't mean selfishly, but just thinking things through. When we, uh, when we did the Bicentennial Liberty Committee in 1976, in order to change the planning director in the county who was going to blockade Ananda's development forever as long as she was in her position, and who was incompetent and had already, the grand jury had already investigated and recommended that she be fired, but the grand jury had not, the supervisors had not acted on that. Swamiji saw that our very survival was at stake. Others did not see this. And he knew we had to get her fired. So we all, we got, he started a political campaign in Nevada County. We started in uh, 1976, so he called it the Bicentennial Liberty Committee. You see, later on in a completely other context, in, in the material success course that he wrote, Swami writes about the Bicentennial Liberty Committee. I'm not sure he mentions it. He's talking about leadership and how to motivate people. And he refers, I know, this, he was referring to that whole thing. And he talked about most of the community, including most of the leaders, didn't want to have anything to do with it because it just seemed like such an absolutely wacko project for Ananda to suddenly become politically active in this county, especially for something like the Bicentennial Liberty Committee. But Swami says, he found one person who has a good sense of humor, and I knew if I appealed to her through her sense of humor, she would get on board, which is precisely what he did. He just presented it to me as, this will be a lark, and he said he was going to call it the Bicentennial Liberty Committee, which just caused me practically collapse on the floor laughing because it was so perfect. It just couldn't have been more perfect, but it was also so funny. And so he just played it out as a, as a he said, as he said, it was deadly serious because Ananda's future was at stake. But he got me on board by emphasizing the good fun of the whole thing. And then I'm, I was a person whose enthusiasm could inspire others, and we got enough of us to be able to make it work. Um, but, uh, but even that, I mean, he just knew. And then with the point I was going to say is he had this strategy that I, I, was, I was really just, uh, whatever you call the person who just does what they're said. Disciple is one word for it, but there's another word, lackey. <laughs> you know, I, and there's a, there's a better word than lackey, but I can't remember what it was. I never had the foggiest idea what we were doing. I mean, I, I didn't have any overview. He would just, we're going to go down to the, sit, to the street corners and we're going to collect signatures on this petition about freedom and the overbearing county officials and how they're not really, and in fact, they, there was a huge problem in the county and Swami knew it. When we started collecting signatures, we started collecting horror stories because it was just being run in an extraordinarily unprofessional, unfair, you know, unsystematic way. It was just bad, and it needed, it needed to be changed. So but first we're just going out. First we go to businesses and get signatures. Then we go to street corners, and then we get signatures. Then we, which is I, start writing letters to the, letters to the editor. Then we, which is I, go to the Board of Supervisors and start talking to the Board of Supervisors. Then we start you know, calling people. Then we start having meetings. And we just start doing all this stuff. And he just would tell me what to do next. Now we need a letter, he said, about the building department. This was, this was my favorite part. How nasty, Swamiji. Medium nasty, he would say. <laughs> so I'd write a medium nasty letter, and then a letter to so-and-so, full nasty, he would say. <laughs> you know, just how fierce. <laughs> and so we just did all this, and I just did whatever he asked. I, I mean, I'm not mindless, but I knew, I didn't care, you know. He wanted us to do this. He knew what he was doing. It was fine with me. And so I just acted it out, and I got to play out a little bit of my you know, my karma as a political activist, you know, my, my, my remaining, my residual revolutionary vrittis, I got to play them out in this little thing. Yeah, I got to go to the Board of Supervisors and present 4,000 names of distraught citizens. I was, I mean, I was actually pretty good at that stuff. And I could play it pretty well. And uh, so we got to play it all out, but it, it unfolded just exactly right, you know, with the sort of 
building up a certain amount of tension and then relieving the tension in the right way and then coming in as the good guys with a, a solution, you know, we could solve all these. It just went whoosh, just seamlessly. And when it all was over, I said, Swami, did you know how this was going to work out? And she got fired. And we got a professional in there and we got our master plan through. It was just exactly what had to happen. As soon as the professional came in, there was no problem. We just were able to do it. And the whole campaign went through its own. It was my first, you know, thing where you build a lot of energy. When I said to Swami, Swami, see, at that point he hadn't been talking about having been Henry I, the King of England, you know, with 30 years of the most peaceful, prosperous ruler in the whole history of England. I mean, a lot of things that he did. But uh, I said, oh, we just, you know, did this thing. Swami says, a tempest in a teapot was his response. You know, like child's play, Nevada County. It's like, how big is, how big is Nevada County? So, but I asked him, did you, did you know how this was going to play out? And uh, he said, no, he said, but I'm not surprised. And, and then this was like 1976, so I'd known him for a few years. But I, I remember, no, but I'm not surprised. And later on, I understood what he meant, because every step of the way, he'd felt guided. And he didn't actually need to know where it was going. He didn't bother to think about where it was going. He just knew that if this was what was needed next, then that would be fine, and then what was needed next would... And it, it wasn't as if if I had asked him, he couldn't have given me some idea. He said, well, he did say, I'm not surprised. I wasn't, it wasn't that he had no idea of what he was doing. But what he really said, and as we talked about it even at other times, he, he just knew that his intuition was right. Now, bear in mind, that was not presumption on his part. Because a lot of times people feel things. And because they feel them, they presume they're right. But the problem is, there is subconscious and there is superconscious feeling. And subconscious feeling can feel extremely right. This, well, this one man was insisting on taking a course of action that we all knew would be disastrous and did prove disastrous for him on a very big scale disastrous that took him, has taken him about 30 years to recover from, which he's now recovering from. And but he kept saying, it just feels so right. And afterwards, because I was part of the conversation, I said to Swamiji, I said, I believe it feels so right because he's closed himself in to his own ego and therefore nothing interferes with this feeling because it's just he's, he's, he's in a closed system where, where there can't be any dissonance. And, and, and that... That's exactly what Swami said. It was subconscious. It was him. It was his voice. But it wasn't the voice that would expand his reality. It was the voice that would allow him to feel comfortable and to maintain who he already was, which in his particular case was not a good idea. Whereas what Swami wanted him to do was to follow a much less obvious superconscious potential that did not feel comfortable to him because it was not running the same as, as all of his past habits. Now, intuition is very, very tricky. So I don't want the mere fact that it feels good for you to say that it's wrong. Everything you say about intuition is, if it feels really comfortable, it could be true or it could be not true. If it feels really un uncomfortable, it could be true or it could be not true. Because it's just not that simple. But Swamiji himself knew that he'd, he could trust it. And the reason he knew he could trust it is because he'd experimented enough to be able to tell the difference in this incarnation or incarnations before. And just interestingly, just to finish this, Swamiji was expelled from Self-Realization Fellowship in 1962 he was expelled for many reasons, but the catalyzing event was an extremely bold effort on his part to build a temple in New Delhi for which he had to get the permission of Prime Minister Nehru to give him the land, which at that time it was, was like Swami said, like being 
given the assignment to fly to the moon under your own power and come back. You know, it's just like Nehru was not giving any ashram any land. India had just been a country for like 10 years when Swami started in 1958, and the last thing they wanted was ashrams. <laughs> they wanted businesses and education, but not ashrams. 1,700 societies tried to get land, and none of them succeeded. But Swami succeeded. But what happened was SRF in Los Angeles was just, it was so big, it was so bold, it was so much more successful than they ex- expected. They just couldn't embrace it. And, and that's a big story, and there's no point in telling all the rest of it, but that's what happened. So it, so it never happened. And as a consequence, he, he really was cast out into outer darkness and eventually thrown out. Swami, Swami told us the story many, many times about getting the land, getting Nehru's approval, having the board of directors in Los Angeles reject the plan, all the consequences, getting thrown out of SRF. I mean, many times. And then one time, after about 15 or 20 years, he said, there he was in India. He was 36 years old. He was in his, well, almost 36, and he was on his own. He was supposed to build the work for Master. He couldn't really think of what to do, and he had this idea, let's build a temple for Master in New Delhi. It just seemed like it would work, because the whole world, the whole country looked to the capital at that point. Delhi was where everything happened. If Master was established prominently in Delhi, the whole country would know about him, and that would, everything would move forward from that point. And then Swami said, I didn't really feel Master's um, the, the kind of intuitive approval from Master that I usually felt. But I couldn't think of anything else to do, and then this was my favorite part. So I decided to see what would happen if I went forward without that kind of intuitive approval. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I remember saying to Swami, well, that was a bold experiment, wasn't it? But it was like he needed to know. Now, he's, he gave other explanations at different times, that Master knew what the consequences would be of this event and, and didn't want Swamiji to feel that Master had set him up, you know, and that was not at all the words that Swami used, but something like that, that Master knew that this would also be a cause of great sorrow for Swamiji. And, and the, the feeling that Swami held of Master holding himself a little distant from it was Master knowing that this was also going to cause Swami great heartache. And so he, it, it was a little distance was maintained. These are very subtle and very private, very personal feelings that Swami had. But my favorite part was, I thought I would just go forward and see what happened. So when it didn't work out, there was a part of him that wasn't at all surprised because he hadn't really had the same endorsement, which also was one more way of being able to tell the difference between when it's a subconscious inspiration that just feels good or it's a real superconscious intuition that has a different energy to it. You know, I, when, uh, when, when, we dis- when we were in, in the uh, litigation with Self-Realization Fellowship and in 2001, which was the 11th year of litigation, the decision was made that we would go down and we would um, conduct an educational campaign which some people might have seen as a direct action campaign, at the SRF convocation because most of the members did not know about this litigation. And it was an extremely controversial thing within Ananda. And there was great concern that something horrible would happen. And talking to Swamiji, finally, I won't, it's all in the book, so I'm just going to shorten it here. I said, Swamiji, you know, how do you feel? What are you concerned about? He said... Uh, he said that he was afraid we, we would get angry. And I said, Swamiji, you underestimate your training of us. He said, you're naive. He said, when, a con- when, you, when you put people in a confrontive situation, tempers can flare. And that's when I said, oh, Swami, we're not going to confront anybody. We're just going to sing, which is exactly what we did. We just stood on the sidewalks and chanted and sang. But then I realized, I said, Swamiji... The idea to do this came to me, and the way I put it, I said, is, I said, in that particular way. And so I have never doubted that it would be a perfect success, because it was that particular way. And which doesn't happen to me by any means all the time. Swami was, it was fascinating. Swami said, oh, well then of course you have to go. 
You know, it's like you can't ignore that when it comes that way. But by that point, 2001, starting in 1969, I knew the difference. Because, Asha, when your ego gets involved, you make terrible mistakes. And there have been plenty of those that started out feeling okay. So by now I could tell the difference. Um, so it's, it's you know, how does that go? That's all Master's saying. He has no personal concerns. He just does what God wants him to do, which is, which is a position you earn. But when you've earned it, you really have it, certainly as Master has. Well, let's take a few minutes break now. It looks like I'm just going to talk for a few more minutes and then we're going to stop. <laughs> um, after we did the... Um, blah, blah, blah. After, in 2001, when we went down to the Self-Realization Fellowship Convocation to inform the SRF members that millions of dollars of their money was being spent to sue their fellow devotees and the members didn't know, we thought they should know. Um, and Swamiji, because it was so controversial within the community he hesitated to endorse the project because he he himself wasn't sure and because it wasn't his idea, it was mine. Now, he, mine and ours, I mean, I was part of a group of five or six of us and we, we discussed it and got quite behind the idea, so I can't take it singular. I was the first person to say it, but, but we got a group of us committed. Um, Swamiji had suggested at different times during that that we, we should take some kind of direct action. He, he, at one point, suggested that we should, but he would make these suggestions and then we would start planning it and then he would always change his mind. At one point he thought he wanted us to go directly to the house where Dayavata lives in Pasadena. And that one got far enough that I actually drove to her house and, and, and to see she, where, what, what the situation was. And we couldn't do it because there were no sidewalks. Because in, you, you, in a demonstration you have to have a piece of public land. You can't, buy, you can't stand in the street and you can't stand on private property so you have to have a sidewalk. So there were no sidewalks. So I stood and stared at the house for a long time to see if I could make a sidewalk. <laughs> so that one, that one was there. So it wasn't completely from nowhere, the idea of standing out publicly and informing. Um, but he, he, wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't endorse it because so many people were not for it. And he would answer like, it wasn't my idea. He was actually very, he was very uh, skillful as a leader because... People that Swami loved and respected really thought it was a bad idea. And Swami himself was not convinced. So he would say things like, I understand why you feel that way. Which is a brilliant thing to say because it's true. I understand why you feel that way. You've neither endorsed it nor rejected it. And, that, and he would also say, well, it wasn't my idea, which it wasn't. Um, and then he would, and he just would go back and forth and back and forth. But after we did it, he wrote, sometimes there's a time for meditation or contemplation. Sometimes there's a time for action. He said, this was the time for action. And basically said, you know, good for you. But also because we carried it off perfectly. We had to promise him that if even one person became angry, we would quit on the spot and come back home. I mean, that was an absolute promise. One person got a little impatient, but he pulled himself back right away. So I didn't think that counted. <laughs> but it was hard to be, get mad when you're just standing there singing Swami's songs or chanting or whatever you're doing. It was just blissful. So where did that all come out of? Direct, yes, but let me think what we were, what we were saying. Oh, just doing things because, that's how I started it. Doing things because you know they're right. And, and not really quite being sure or having a feeling. You know, it's very... It's, you know, Swamiji's... Not everything Swamiji tried worked also. It's very important. And even actually... I'm going to talk for five more minutes and then, you can all, then we'll stop. Um, uh, Swamiji remarked once that oftentimes he knew that something wasn't going to be successful, but he supported it, even suggested it, because he knew the person who was going to do it needed to do it. Or he knew that it, it would help the person doing it learn something they needed to learn. And the, from the outside you would think that what you were trying... To, see, this is exactly where I started. 
If you start trying for perfection, you may stumble on attunement. But if you start with attunement, you're more likely to stumble on perfection. But perfection, from the point of view of attunement, is not the same as having it work out right in the world. So even, for example, when we tried to make Ananda California City, since I'm talking about political action, it was an 18-month effort that failed, completely failed, in, in that objective. But the reason we did that is because we had a very difficult relationship with our immediate neighbors, who were always blocking our efforts in the county. And after that effort, we got a lot more respect. And we got a lot more respect from the county. We actually got a lot more respect from our neighbors. And like the whole situation, it did not become effortless, but it moved forward in a real positive way because we had really stood up for ourselves. And we'd stood up for ourselves in a very intelligent, balanced, um, sensible, fair-minded way. And also, that experience drew out of some of our opponents, the the ugliness of it got a little out of control on their side because they were goaded on by people who had uh, private agendas against Swami, which was like ex-Ananda members. It's all very complicated. It's all in the book. But he, um, what happened was a lot of the people who opposed us uh, were appalled by the way the energy went. And they did. They never. They never did that again. So what was success? So you can often feel that that you're supposed to do this, but success is not necessarily because you'll succeed. And for me personally, he told me later that it was a very, very important learning for me for what I'm for what my life is really about, which is not political action, because I had to stand by the truth no matter whether people wanted to hear it or not. And I, 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 you, it might surprise you to know I can be a little timid about that sometimes, or I could have been more then. As Swami said, I'm very intuitive, so I know what people want to hear. And as a consequence, sometimes I'm tempted to tell them that <laughs> instead of telling them what needs to be said. But when, <laughs> when we were doing that uh, event, um, and the last hearing had 800 people in it, and everyone who wasn't from Ananda, which was about 500 or 600 of the 800, was absolutely fiercely against what we were doing, you kind of learned to just hold your own. Because, you know, in every situation, I had, to, I had to defend a very unpopular point of view. So I got rather comfortable with doing that. So it was an investment in my future. So I, I, I was saying this morning, it cost us about... I don't really know, but I remember there was a thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar tag on it, which in nineteen eighty one for Ananda was a gigantic amount of money. And uh, so I remember saying at a community meeting when we were having a little wrap up satsang, I said, Well, we didn't get a city, but Swami said it was good for me. I hope you didn't mind. <laughs> I know it was a lot to invest in me, but you know, it just thank you. I'm very grateful for your doing it. So you don't know. You just don't know. You have to just let things unfold. Okay. Is there any comments or thoughts or questions before we give it up for the night? No, actually, no, no. I'm going to give you an answer, which is whatever the Tuesday was in 2016 when there was the presidential election, whatever the the Sunday was, and I don't know the dates, but anybody wants to can look this up. Look up the date of the presidential election 2016. Look at the following Sunday. Because I, you know, was just getting up and thinking, I'm looking at the Bible Gita reading, thinking I'd just give an ordinary Sunday service, and I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, nobody's thinking about the Bible and the Gita, everybody's thinking about the presidential election. So I gave my best, I mean, it was only a 20 or 30 minute talk, I gave my very best thoughts that I can give about politics and the spiritual path, about the transition between Kali Yuga into Dwapara and the role of people who meditate and how people like me, I'll just use myself, relate to all of that. And I said it completely then and I couldn't possibly say it in the time that's allotted now, but that is archived and it wouldn't be too hard to find.
Okay? And I'll be back in two months. And if you ask that question at the beginning of a class, <laughs> I'm more likely to answer it. Yeah? Okay? Because it's a fair question. And it's, a, and it's a real question. And so I have, I have addressed it. But it's a, it's, a, it's a very nuanced answer. And I can't do it quickly. Because if I do it quickly, it makes no sense. You have to have the full picture on these things. It's up to you. I'll see how. I'll go home right now and see how many hits it has, and we'll see how many it has. No, no views, views, views on YouTube. It's views. In the meantime, we could uh, tune in uh, the talk that I'm sure has been recorded around the first Sunday after the election day in 2016, and listen in. No, that's exactly. That's what I just said. Okay. All right, great souls. I think we're not going. No, it's fair. It's perfectly fair. Any thinking person would wonder. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you. I shall. Oh, just a minute. Let me just... Wait, wait. Before you do that, I have to just put onto the recording where we did. Yeah, and I need a pencil. We did from 403 to 406. We just speeded through tonight. Okay. Now, Now you may, if you like. Okay.